and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in, wherever you are, in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And for this podcast, the second of our week, I'm delighted to be joined by the Shadow Education Secretary, Bridget Philipson. Comes at a big moment. We've had Keir Starmer outlining his uh, national five national missions. And of course, education will be absolutely central to whatever a Labour government does if it's elected next year. Thank you so much for coming in, uh, Bridget. Could I begin by asking you about the areas of policy detail that you've been exploring since you got the brief? And and the one that's really been highlighted quite a lot is childcare, the need for childcare to be provided in various forms. Um, and I know one of the things that you've been doing is looking at other models, uh, travelling to other places. What have you found? We're not going to get all the detail in this interview, but what have you found from other models that you are thinking of learning from and taking from as you prepare your pitch for the election? No, thanks very much, Stephen. It's really good to uh, join you today. The first place that I went to look at another way of doing things was Estonia, where they have a very different system where it comes to early years provision and childcare. So the school start um, age is a bit later, but actually from the end of parental leave, you have guaranteed access to um, early years childcare and the take-up is incredibly high, even though it's uh, not mandatory for children to start from the age of two onwards. What really struck me when I was there was the quality of the provision that's on offer. So it's teacher-led provision, take-ups high, um, and parents really benefit from that kind of flexibility that comes of having uh, a guarantee of childcare being there, which is not where we are right now here in England. But what struck me more broadly was just the centrality of education uh, to Estonian life, uh, to the nation, that it was seen as a means of opening up opportunity for children and young people and a really key part of their identity. And unsurprisingly, when you've got a greater push where it comes to early years education, you don't end up with the same level of attainment gap where children start school already behind their more affluent peers. So I think part of the challenge for us here is not just what we do around schools and when children are there, but how do we make sure that when children are arriving at school, they're in the best possible position and it's the most disadvantaged children that are losing out from a system that just isn't working. So just out of interest, how did that come about there? Because I, I didn't know it was so thorough and extensive and the education was such a focus until you wrote about it, actually, when you came back. So how did it happen? Was it the will of, I don't know, your equivalent in Estonia or, or, or was it a, a wider just cultural acceptance that this was necessary? W what brought it about there? I think it's a combination. So what what the Estonians would say when I was there is, you know, they, they're a small country, relatively small country with a relatively small population. And therefore, education is an important part of how they succeed as a nation. And that, I mean, they do a lot more broadly where it comes to, to schools and the, the technology that they've, the way that they've changed things and developed things. And language learning is a really important part of, of that too, when you're a, a smaller nation. You know, obviously, they, they come from a very, you know, very different history and very different background where it comes to they were part of the Soviet Union. So it's a very obviously it was a very different system and they've, they've moved beyond that. And I suppose they had that opportunity from independence onwards to shape what they wanted for their country. And what other people said when I came back was, well, Estonia is 
a small country, of course, it's easy for a smaller country to, to look at doing things differently. I think the opposite is true. I think if you're a country like ours that is, you know, we're up there as the, one of the big G7 nations. How is it that we've got to a position as a big economy and a big G7 nation? Yet we've got a system where it comes to childcare that costs parents an absolute fortune, where the quality isn't always there in terms of outcomes for children, and increasingly providers are closing their doors. I think I just don't accept that we're destined to that kind of failure. And I think there is a real opportunity uh, for an incoming Labour government, if we're fortunate enough, to really think imaginatively and differently about how we deliver a, a reformed education system. So before we go on to exploring how in the UK, what, or certainly England and whatever remit you have over the UK, you've also just recently got back from Australia, haven't you? Where I think you were also interested in the system being implemented there. Absolutely. And I think what's struck me where it comes to Australia is they've got a, they recognise the importance of dealing with this issue around childcare as a cost of living pressure that families are facing. And, and many families there are facing the same cost of living pressures that families are here in England. But they also want to, you know, had an election win off the back of a really clear commitment to delivering more affordable childcare. And they face some of the same challenges there around uh, availability too. And what they're looking at is the role for government in providing those opportunities for expansion where the private sector can't deliver that. That's why we've got a commitment around removing the bar on councils opening maintained nurseries once again. That seems to me completely illogical that they're barred from opening new provision where provision is needed. Because in particularly in more uh, disadvantaged parts of England right now, we see big childcare deserts where there just isn't childcare that's available. Obviously, Australia, massive country, big rural population, they face some of those same kinds of pressures. But this, they had identified the problem. They went into an election with a clear plan to how, around how to make that cost of living pressure um, more manageable for families. But what they're doing now from government is an earlier strategy alongside it that drives up standards, that reforms the workforce, that provides better training and support for people delivering childcare. You can see potentially the dream sequence that, you know, people uh, have the guaranteed childcare in Estonia. They... Um, are therefore able to go out to work, the economy becomes more productive. And as you say, at the moment here, it's spasmodic, expensive, and so on, uh, for parents to do it. Uh, so presumably, you know, I'm not going to go on about tax and spend, because there's a limit to how far we get with these tax and spend questions. But it will cost money, won't it? And, and, and how are you going to get over this never-ending tax and spend pre-election conundrum where if Labour pledged to spend a penny, it's billed as a tax bombshell, when this clearly will cost money? You can't wave a wand for it to happen. I think it will connect to our wider argument around economic growth and how you grow your economy. So Part of the challenge that we face at the moment is that women in particular are cutting back on their hours or giving up jobs they love because childcare is so expensive and unavailable. And for the first time, we're at a tipping point where women are not returning to work after having their first child. The numbers are moving in the wrong direction. So we're missing out on all of that talent and potential. And obviously, for at an, at an individual level, parents are being denied the choices that they want to have in terms of how they live their lives. I think that does has, have to change. But if you are to grow your economy, then you have to make sure that you're dealing with some of those big barriers to labour market participation. I think childcare is one of the biggest. And that does reflect, I think, the wider shift that we've seen 
over the last 30 to 40 years around women's role in the labour market. Women have always worked, but the way in which women quite rightly want to be in paid employment and want opportunities when they're at work to progress and to do things differently, we are missing out on so much and that comes at a big economic cost. You are right that you know we do quite rightly face challenge around how we're going to pay for what we set out. That's why what we've set out so far is a modern childcare system from the end of parental leave to the end of primary school. The first part of that being breakfast clubs, because childcare doesn't your childcare issues don't end when your children start at school. Far from it. So giving parents choice around the school day too. That's all fully funded and fully costed. And I think whatever wherever we get to will involve a phasing and a clear plan around how we deliver it because. It's no good, I think, just pouring money into a system that isn't working, even with additional investment into the current system. I don't think that would address all of the challenges that we see. There has to be a plan around workforce. We have to drive up standards and we have to provide better opportunities for staff working in early years childcare because they're badly paid often. There isn't obvious career progression. And sadly, that means so many of them go elsewhere, particularly into retail, because it's a tough job, a great job, but a tough job. So if we if we do have extra money to spend... How do we make sure that's spent well, properly targeted and also delivers for children? Yeah, because you have to get the staff as well, don't you, as well as have the vision? Because it's very interesting in Estonia, you say that they get sort of qualified teachers at age two or whatever. At these, uh, and, and so to get to that kind of equivalent is going to need more staff. Uh, and and well-trained staff as well. And I think it involves thinking differently about that rule for early years, childcare and education. So bringing that into our education system, not seen as being a separate part of education, but in Estonia, it's part of that overall education system. It's not seen as somehow separate or different. And part of that will be important in raising, raising the standing of the sector and making sure that if we are in a position to deliver change around early years, education and childcare, it can't just be undone by later governments. So the tragedy of Sure Start, for example, is it was fantastic, amazing, life-changing. But the Conservative government came in in 2010, pulled away the money and over a thousand closed. How do we make sure that if we are in a position to deliver that change, it is change that lasts or reshaping of the education system in a, in a very fundamental way. It's interesting when exploring how you get to this, that um, when Keir Starmer talked about uh, economic growth in his as one of his uh, uh, mission, what not pledges, statements, five mission statements, some people say, well, well, what the hell is he doing talking about pledging, not pledging, but you know, aspiring to or aiming to the highest growth in the G7 or whatever? Is part of the reason for that to give you the space to put the case for childcare? In other words, instead of saying, well, look, th- we'll raise a halfpenny here to spend on this, and you can put an argument about childcare in the context of economic growth, that it would generate economic growth. And that, in a way, frees you from the, well, we'll raise 10p here, 20p, you know, the normal pre-election madness. I think it's also about having a bigger vision for how we can, you know, we've, we've, got, we're, we've got such potential as a country that I think, you know, you travel around, you know, I'm able to travel around quite a lot. In the Northeast, amazing people who want to be a part of something bigger but there is a bigger skills challenge too. I mean, childcare is a massive part of this, but ongoing upskilling, uh, retraining throughout people's working lives, the you know the fact we don't have enough apprenticeships for young people, it's if we we need to change all of that in order to get that growth that we do want to see. But what Keir was also saying um, 
in launching those missions was that we should be hopeful and optimistic and ambitious as a country. We shouldn't imagine somehow that we're on a path to decline. The British people are ambitious and we want to match that and we want to deliver that growth because it will provide more opportunities right around our country. But Keir was also clear that that's not just about growth in London and the South East. It has to be growth that people feel in their own lives and makes tangible changes and that people are better off at the end of it. In terms of the sequencing, what comes first? Because you would argue with huge amounts of evidence that what you're proposing generates economic growth. But I think you would also accept that what you are proposing needs economic growth to pay for it. So uh, what comes first? Because the economy is not growing very much at the moment. It might not be when you get in, if you get in. (laughs) I think the challenge as well is that because so much of the capacity of government has been hollowed out over the last 13 years, it will take us time to get things right. And there is a real issue, I think, where it comes to if we're going to have really ambitious commitments, and that's where you know we, we want to be in terms of some of the, the more detailed uh, pledges that arise out of the missions, we've got to have a plan for how we deliver that. I think nothing is more corrosive to trust in politics than politicians coming along and promising the earth and then not delivering. And any additional commitments where it comes to childcare needs to address workforce, it needs to raise standards, but it needs to deal with some of those you know practical barriers you know, where, how, that's the work that we're doing right now so that from government we can start to make that really deep and lasting change. But, you know, it it is tough and it will be tough in an environment where there'll be difficult decisions to make around what we can and can't do, what we, how we spend money, because the economy's been in a pretty difficult state uh, over the last decade or so and it's not clear that economic growth is going to come back in any meaningful way between now and then. But do you sense that this will be a priority. Obviously, it will be for you, um, but will be for Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. You know that this will be not something that oh, you're going to have to wait a long time. That this will be something that they that they will with you focus from day one. I mean, Kia cares very deeply about how we open up opportunities for children and young people, and there is nothing more important than making sure children get a great start in life. And the early years in childcare will be a central part of that. And Rachel Reeves, of course. Um, It would be amazing to have the first female chancellor, uh, if she were chancellor of the Exchequer, and she will bring a different approach. I think we've already seen that where it comes to her approach on climate change, doing things differently. But she understands the challenges around childcare and what needs to change. And I know she's been looking at what they've been considering over in the US around modern supply side reform. What what does that mean? It's not the kind of Tory deregulation approach, but what Janet Yellen is talking about, about around modern supply side And childcare is a big part of that too. Can I just ask you about another policy area? I know you haven't got uh, the details to uh, announce, so to speak. But on tuition fees, there is something that Keir Starmer has said publicly. I mean, he's not going to stick to his... uh, one of the templates to scrap them, but he says it's not working at the moment. He said that repeatedly. He said it in interviews the other day. What's not working? And so what are you looking at in terms of whatever you announce when you come to announce the policy on this? It's the system overall. So 
we are ending up with a system that is more regressive than even it was before. The, the changes that are coming into force will mean that low and middle earning graduates will pay back more for longer and in many cases will never pay back what they've borrowed. And you, when you look at the the kind of the analysis that's been done in terms of the impact of those changes, it does fall very heavily on low and middle earning students. And I don't think that's sustainable. It's not sustainable for the current government. They recognise that, but they've just kicked decisions around this into the long grass. So they know that the system won't endure beyond the end of the decade. We recognise that too. But it is trickier from opposition to fully model out what some of the options are. But I just don't believe that the system that we have right now is is right and I don't think it will last. The government know that, but as in so many areas of policy, they're just dodging the difficult decisions and they're just not really, t- you know, on so many areas it feels like government departments are not really doing a great deal. They're just going through the motions and we do need to get to a more progressive system where it comes to higher education for the individual, but also when you speak to institutions um, they're under pressure too, and you know they want a sustainable, long-term um, solution where it comes to universities themselves. Do you, in principle, I'm not asking you to make a commitment to, it, but is a graduate tax, in your view, fairer, in, in, at least in theory? I think there are a number of different options that could deliver a better and fairer system, both for students, for the taxpayer, and also to give sustainability to the sector and, and to institutions. It's harder from opposition to model out some of that. And we are seeing a changing landscape in terms of additional changes that the government are bringing in um, that, that does make the system more aggressive. And I also look to the pressures that students tell me they face around maintenance, and that's a real problem. They're often more concerned about the day-to-day cost of living pressures that they're seeing right now. That's a big concern when you speak to students um, when I'm visiting universities. But it sounds that... Uh from your view, almost whoever wins the next election, this tuition fees system that has been in place is heading towards the end. I think the government know that it's not a system that will endure for very long, but they're just not prepared to consider the alternatives and look at, you know, whether you know whether they would work with us or work with others to look at a better and different system. We're, we're not in that place. The government are just kicking this down the road. In terms of the wider framing of your brief, which is so central to so many, I suppose, hopes really uh, in a build up to an election. It's very interesting. I was looking back at preparing for our our talk with um, David Blunkett was your equivalent in 1997. And of course, then the framing was standards, not structures. And it was just a focus on lift the standards in the schools. We're not going to change the structures. Then later it became structures <laughs> and they regretted having standards, not structures. What is your kind of equivalent framing in, in, in the build up to, let's assume it's next year, the election? I think there is still something in that around a focus on standards. We will inherit a very, you know, if we win the next election, we will inherit a very fragmented landscape. And there is a, rene- there is a need to knit some of that back together where it comes to schools. But, how, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. the, the sort of, how do you um, knit together what is a very fragmented system of you know, local authority schools, city academies, these different self-governing forms of schools. How do you knit it all back together? So when the government brought forward the schools bill in the Lords last year, which has now kind of gone to the great legislative graveyard in the <laughs> sky, um, that that was the opportunity where we were starting to discuss some of those changes. So, for example, how we better define the role for local authorities 
um, where it comes to place planning and in managing some of that. Now, I don't want us to engage in a process of big structural change if in the early years of a Labour government, if we were to be elected, in part because there are so many pressures within the system, not least around teacher recruitment and retention, that I think will need to be a priority. But how do we smooth the differences between the schools that we have rather than seeking to upturn a system? I, you know, If a school is delivering and, and things are working well, then I don't want to upend that. But I am concerned that in certain parts of the country um, in particular, um, We've seen schools that have been stuck for some time and there hasn't been a real focus on how we better support schools in those areas to raise standards, how we make sure that there are attractive places to head te- for head teachers to go and work. And I think part of that is around the accountability system that we have right now. So partly Ofsted, some of those wider measures in terms of how we uh, consider the value and effectiveness of schools. But what I'm also struck by when I speak with teachers and school leaders is that given the enormous pressure that they're under right now and the absence of that wider support where it comes to mental health support for families, um, rising levels of child poverty. It's about how we look at the school as as a central part of the community. And, you know, if we were to have big structural upheaval, I think it would detract from some of what is needed right now to get some of the basics right, which is where they're facing the pressure. The pressure that teachers face is partly around the, that absence of wider support uh, that was once there and is no longer there. So you you, you kind of see a situation where a, a wider role for local authorities, a, a wider role for schools in communities, but there would still be city academies, self-governing schools of whatever form they take and local the, – the, the sort of mix of different uh, institutions running schools, that would probably stay. I think we can seek to smooth some of the differences, but I wouldn't be seeking to engage in big structural upheaval. I think the challenges that our schools face right now and a situation that is likely to have worsened in the next year or so is primarily around teacher recruitment and retention. At a secondary level especially, it's next to impossible for some schools to recruit math, science, technology teachers. We also see lots of teachers leaving the profession after a few years, um, a real loss of talent. Um, and that is causing a lot of pressure in the system. So that will be a big priority to address. And also how we support the next generation of school leaders to come through. A lot of people just don't want to step up. They feel that the pressure is too great and they don't feel supported. And frankly, they don't feel valued because we've had a government, including during the pandemic, that spent a very long time speaking in very negative and dismissive terms about teachers. How big a factor is pay in all of this? You mentioned that with the childcare situation at the moment, uh, many people who get into this world are badly paid in Britain compared probably to Estonia and Australia and others. And obviously, uh, teachers at the moment are uh, having uh, putting through their pay demands and strike action and so on. How big a factor is pay in recruiting and keeping teachers? And how much is it to do with the quality of their working lives? I mean, of course, pay is an issue and has become more of an issue even in the time that I've been in this role um, since November 2021, where those cost of living pressures are being felt by our school staff and, and teachers. But it is part of a wider problem, I think, where teachers and school staff just don't feel appreciated and valued. They want to see further change in many cases where it comes to their professional agency. They want to feel respected for the work they do and they want to see wider reform on some of those accountability measures too. 
And if you look at what Labour delivered from government, we delivered real terms pay rises for teachers. We'll face, you know, an incoming Labour government would face an economic situation even more difficult than 1997. So there'll be, we won't be able to fix everything immediately. But I think when you compare that to what teachers have seen under this government, which for experienced teachers is a 13% real terms pay cut, if you look at the difference between how Labour prioritises, supports and invests in teachers and in school staff compared to what the Conservatives have been doing, I think it's obvious that you know we do things very differently from government. Yeah, it's going to be much tougher than 97. Was, was the economy growing about 2.5% in 97? The economy was yes. starting to grow at that stage. Yeah. Um, it, was, I mean, it, it wasn't a great inheritance, but the inheritance in 2024, if we're so fortunate, would be even more serious. Yeah, you say uh, if. Um, as I was going to sort of ask you about this. It, it's, I'd, I've forgotten that you, you came in in 2010, didn't you? So you've been here through all the election, <laughs> just as they were kicked out, you were in as an MP. How bigger difference is it? Now, I know none of you are complacent. Uh, It's the big watchword, don't be complacent. How different is the mood when, let's put it this way, many people now think you could win compared to where you lost in 2015, 2017, it was a hung parliament, slaughtered in 2019. I mean, you've just experienced so far defeat. I mean, you as an MP. Yeah, but I mean, when you've lost four general elections on the bounce, you're certainly not complacent about uh, the next election. But I think there is a balance to strike. We're not complacent, but we do need to, as we are, to set out how a Labour government can and will make life better for people. And I think especially in that context of a growing sense that because everything has become so broken, people will say to me, but can anyone really fix it? And that, I think, is a challenge it's a challenge for all politicians, but it's a challenge especially for us. That's why we're not complacent, but we do need to set out, and we will set out further, how we've got a plan to make life better. So we've obviously had key missions this week, but then as we get closer to the election, distilling that down further with clear kind of retail pledges and commitments. Because when everything is so broken, you know, schools, hospitals, crime, people do say on the doorstep, well, maybe maybe this is just how it is. And we've got to overcome that and have that real sense of optimism and confidence about how we can and will change Britain and that government does have a role to play in making people's lives better. And when Labour kept on losing, did you think, oh, blimey, I don't know how much more I could put up with this? I mean, it's, or is opposition in itself uh, quite fulfilling, even if it's in the context of losing elections. It was a pretty miserable time for for lots of different reasons. And I joined the Labour Party because I wanted to see Labour making change in people's lives in my community in Sunderland, where I grew up and across the country. And none of us came into politics just to sit around making the argument, losing the argument and losing elections. And that becomes more and more frustrating when you speak to people who are so badly affected by the consequences of this government. So when I visit schools and they tell me how many children are arriving at school having not had breakfast, um, the rising levels of child poverty they see, including amongst staff too, which is an abs- which is absolutely tragic, and just knowing that things could be better. So I don't take any satisfaction from being in opposition. And it's it's been an incredibly frustrating time. What we do have in this year going into ahead of what is likely to be an election year is to really do the serious and detailed work around how we could make this change from government. That's not to be complacent, but we need, if we are, if we're, you know, lucky enough to get there, 
we need to be able to deliver and to deliver at pace. And just finally, I mean, Labour kept on losing elections. You, you, you carried on winning your seat, but you must meet a lot of people in the northeast. And when you travel around the so-called Red Wall, who voted conservative? I mean, there would be must be people you knew in Sunderland who, in twenty nineteen, voted conservative. Are they all saying to you now, "Oh, we regret that we are voting Labour," or is it still, "Oh, you know, we're not." We're not quite sure, you know, this Brexit thing. We're not where we con. Where we haven't, you know, what, 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 those who turn away from Labour to Tory in the area where you have the constituency and where you travel around. What, what are they saying when you bump into them? I mean, we still need to fight for every vote, but there is a real sense that the government have just made a mess of so much. And for those who voted Conservative for the first time in their life in 2019, that was a big leap for a lot of people. And they felt that their trust was, um, you know, they they were badly let down by the actions, particularly of Boris Johnson. I think that really was a a turning point moment where they felt they'd been taken for granted. Did a lot of them really vote for him in 2019? They liked him? They liked the message of change and they felt that they were being listened to and that Boris Johnson would deliver that change for them. And when it became clear that not only was that not going to happen, but that particularly his actions during the pandemic were disrespectful, um, that was a a key moment. I don't think that was picked up so much at the time in that kind of discussion around Partygate, but it was evident on the doorsteps that people were already starting to move. And when you speak to people right now, during this recess, I was door knocking quite a lot in Sunderland. And a lot of people are coming back over to us, but we've still got a job of work to do and we're still potentially quite a way out from the election. And they, you know, they rightly demand that they want to hear more from us about how we will make that change. And that that's right. And that's as it should be. And that's a responsibility I think we should take seriously. And that's the big challenge in the coming. This is the last full year, probably, isn't it, before the election? Bridget Phillipson, thank you so much for coming to the studio. I know you've got a dash. So I'm just going to say to everyone listening, Thank you so much for listening. And we must all get together again in the next few days to make sense of other issues. So do tune in and subscribe, etc. But thanks again to Bridget Phillipson for joining us today.